In John Updike's 1970 short story, The Deacon, a story originally published in The New Yorker, Updike tells the story of an unassuming character named Miles, a man in his mid-50s who is deeply committed to his church. Now, while Miles complains about this often, about the amount of work he contributes to the church, and about the tedium of the regular meetings he has to attend, and about the boring and overly pious sermons from the pastor, still, nonetheless, Miles' commitment to his church is something that is vital to his very sense of being. And so Updike's point in the story, again, published in 1970, was to try to plumb the depths of why. Why, for all of Miles' internal complaining about his church, why does it nonetheless remain so important to him? Why, when so many others are no longer even going to church, why does Miles, who doesn't even consider himself to be that spiritual or devout, why then does Miles nonetheless contribute so much of his time and his energy to it? Well, writing at a time when major cultural shifts were taking place in America, and when church attendance was no longer something that was simply taken for granted anymore, Updike, a committed churchgoer himself, was posing a very serious and important question with this story. Which is, what's the draw that keeps those who are coming, still coming? Or as Updike has Miles put this same question to himself in the story, and I quote, Why persist in work so thoroughly thankless? begging for pledges, pinching and scraping to save decaying old buildings, facing rings of Sunday school faces baked to adamant cynicism by hours of television watching, attending fruitless meetings, missing sleep. Why? Fruitless meetings? Never. Well, Updike ultimately answers that why through a masterful stroke of narrative artistry. But I'm not yet ready to share that answer yet. And so I'm going to instead save that for later. Because for now, I want to tell you a story about something that made a profound impression on me shortly after I arrived here at Boulevard as your pastor. Now, as you all well remember, on Wednesday nights, pre-coronavirus, we would meet without fail for prayer meeting in the CAC. And as always, we would share a meal together, and once finished with our meals, we'd always take our plates and silverware to the kitchen so as to be washed. Same drill, same mundane motions every Wednesday night over and over and over unchanging since the first Wednesday evening the CAC was ever opened. You all remember this of course. Okay I set that all up so as to now tell you this. 
In September of last year, one Wednesday night, I went to take my plate to the kitchen only to look up and see then 11-year-old Jack Callahan standing there beside his father Daniel, both of them aproned and rubber-gloved, ready to receive my plate and begin washing our dishes. And I thought to myself, wow, that's really great. And then the following week, I took my plate to the kitchen, only to find not Jack, but instead Tessa Callahan, Jack's then seven-year-old sister, standing beside her father, aproned and rubber-gloved, ready to receive my plate and begin washing our dishes. And once more, I thought to myself, wow, that's really great. And then... And here now is the image I really want to impress upon us this morning. And then, a few short weeks after that, I once more took my plate to the kitchen, only to find Jack Callahan once more there waiting to wash our dishes. But, this time I didn't see his father standing there beside him. Instead, I saw him standing there beside Bill Crow, a then 90-year-old member of our church. A man who, I presume, has been accepting plates such as these for decades. A man who, like Updike, writes of his character Miles is nearly daily at the church, performing some small function, checking in on things to make sure that everything's okay, and just dropping by to say hello. There these two were together, side by side. Do you have that image? Here was young Jack Callahan, standing beside old Bill Crow. I say that with affection. <laughs> Together, side by side, performing the mundane, thankless task of cleaning dirty dishes at the church. And like I say, that made a big impression on me. And as this sermon draws on, I will further explain why. But for now, I want us to take a quick look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. And here in this lovely story, we are invited into the relationship between a woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law, a woman named Naomi. Well, tragically, before our story even begins, Naomi's husband dies. And then just as our story begins, Ruth's husband, and thus Naomi's son, dies. And so now, living in a foreign land, and having lost both her husband and now her son, now Naomi, the mother-in-law, feels there is no reason for her to remain in Moab where she is. And thus she announces to Ruth that she is going to move home, to move back to Bethlehem in Judah, the place where she was born. Well, suffice it to say, there's so much else to this story, which is to say there are so many details I'm going to leave out this morning for brevity's sake, not to mention other characters I'm not even speaking about. But what ultimately takes place in this story is that rather than let her mother-in-law leave without her, Ruth instead pledges to her mother-in-law her faithfulness and her commitment 
to her. Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you, she says in chapter 1. For wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you will lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. It's a beautiful pledge of commitment. And the rest of the story amounts to watching Ruth remain faithful to her word. She does follow Naomi wherever she goes. And she does lodge where Naomi lodges. And she does accept Naomi's God as her God. And again, I cannot overstress that I am leaving out vital aspects of this story. But I am doing so for a very specific reason. I am oversimplifying things so as to make this not at all simplistic point. Which is that by the story's end, after having gone through all they've gone through together, after having been bonded by their shared hardship and struggle, after having proven to one another over and over and over again, not just through their proclamations of fidelity, but meanwhile through the small daily mundane acts of service that proved their fidelity, after having proven to one another over and over and over again that they were in this together, that they were for one another, that they were with one another, after having proven that, here's what happens at the story's end. At the story's end, the very end, the women of Bethlehem, these women whom Naomi grew up with and whom she had been away from for decades, these women having themselves now watched and seen and witnessed the powerful bond between Naomi and Ruth. Here at the story's end, these women speak to Naomi, directly addressing her relationship with Ruth, saying to her, Blessed are you. Blessed are you, quote, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. And in the ancient Near East gang, that ain't bad. In other words, these women are saying, Blessed are you for what the faithfulness between the two of you has built. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Because that leads me now to a word on faithfulness. To a word on commitment. To a word on loyalty and to fidelity to something other bigger, excuse me, something bigger than ourselves. This used to be something we prized, culturally speaking. Which is to say we used to take it for granted that giving of ourselves to someone or something other than ourselves was a good thing. A laudable thing. We even in many ways considered it our duty as human beings. That is, considered it to be an obligation. 
but slowly, and for reasons we won't examine in this sermon, slowly that all began to shift in the third quarter of the last century. Right around the time that Updike was writing his short story for the New Yorker, in fact. For you see, around that time, this ethic of faithfulness began to give way to a new ethic that we could call the ethic of authenticity. At least, that's what leading philosopher Charles Taylor calls it. And in this new ethic of authenticity, our commitment to anything other than our own deepest and most immediate desires became problematic. For how this new ethic asks, how can someone else or how can something else possibly know what is best for us? That is, know what is best for me as an individual. And thus, in this new ethic, conforming our wills to anything that felt boring or stifling or cumbersome or simply in the way of our own immediate wants and desires. Well, conformity to anything like that, well, it became old hat. Something we just always done reflexively, perhaps because of tradition or external pressures or who knows what else, but now no longer. For a new day had now dawned. A new wave of enlightenment had now set in. And no longer did it make any sense to us to do something unless we could see the immediate value in it for us. Okay, we'll get out of the weeds on this now. And we won't in this sermon lift up the obvious goods that have been made possible by this ethic of authenticity. Namely, that people have been empowered to flourish as the unique individuals they were designed by God to be. We'll save all that for some other sermon. But what we will do is quickly turn our attention to the way that with the dawning of this age of authenticity and with the demonstrable goods that it made possible, how with it we also soon enough began to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Which is to say, in rightly refusing to conform any longer to things that suppressed true life within us, we soon began to refuse to conform to anything at all. Or to put that differently still, we quickly began to confuse commitment to the wrong thing with commitment to anything being wrong. Do you follow that? I hope you do. Because the purpose of this sermon on faithfulness is to highlight what we lose when we mistake these two things. Yes, the purpose of this sermon on faithfulness is to highlight what we miss out on when we misunderstand why faithfulness matters in the first place. And that leads me back to Updike's short story and to his character Miles and his internal question about why to persist in his commitment to his church, that is, in his faithfulness to his church. 
Now, if you'll recall, Updike early in the story captured Miles' internal monologue as Miles asked himself, quote, why persist in this work so thoroughly thankless, so thoroughly mundane and boring, so obviously inconsequential to the larger things going on in the world? So contrary to the more exciting things I could be doing with my time, why persist? If you'll recall, such is Miles' question at the beginning of the story. Well, as the story nears its conclusion, Miles shows up for a meeting at the church one winter's night, only to find that the other members of the committee have not yet arrived. And so having a key to the church, he lets himself in and he goes to the meeting room to wait. But then looking down to his watch, only to find that his watch has stopped, he therefore decides to go into the old sanctuary, a sanctuary built in 1880, Updike tells us. And he decides to go in there to consult the clock hanging upon the sanctuary's far wall. And so here now is Updike's narration of this moment, and listen carefully. Miles switches on the nave lights. A moment passes before they come on. Around and above him, like a stiff white forest, the hewn frame creaks and groans in conversation with the wind. The high black windows, lashed as if by handfuls of sand, seem to flinch, yet do not break. And Miles feels the timber of this ark with its ballast of box pews. He feels it give and sway in the fierce weather, yet hold. And this is why he has come, to share the pride of this ancient thing that will not quite die. Do you hear that? Here in the sanctuary, This ancient sanctuary, taking in the sights and the sounds of this otherwise insignificant building. Here, Miles has this epiphany that, quote, this is why he has come, to share in the pride of this ancient thing that will not quite die. That is, to be part of a story so much bigger than himself. And so here now is how the story ends. Sitting there in the sanctuary, having just had this epiphany, Miles can see up past the clock to the gallery where items from the church's past, Puritan pew doors, ten-foot warmers, velvet collection bags, cracking black-and-white portraits of old pastors, oval photographs of deceased deacons, and as Updike writes, quote, unlabeled photographs of chubby crossed children lined up under trees long since cut down. Follow me here, gang. Here at the end of this story, Miles sitting in this old sanctuary, now understanding why he persists in coming, now knowing it's because he finds a deep sense of purpose by being a small part of this ancient thing that will not quite die. Now understanding the beauty of it all, 
the allure of it all, the draw of it all, now Updike depicts Miles sitting here in the sanctuary, taking in these tokens of the church's history, and then Updike writes, and I quote, all this anonymous treasure Miles possesses by being here. All this anonymous treasure. That is to say, all of this richness and fullness and meaning and joy, all of it hidden, only to be revealed to those who faithfully attend to it. The point of this story, and with it the point of the sermon, to experience the richness made possible by the virtue of faithfulness, one has to commit to the tedium of day-to-day, unsung, unexciting acts of service. To experience the fullness made possible by the virtue of faithfulness, one has to commit him or herself to something bigger than him or herself. Which is simply to say there is no shortcut to this kind of richness and fullness. But that with that being said, there is also no substitute for this kind of richness and fullness. For no amount of immediate pleasure or instant gratification or dizzying leap from one excitement to the next for none of that in the final analysis can compare to the fullness and the richness and the meaningfulness of having given of ourselves slowly and surely steadily and sincerely time and again, year after year, to something other than ourselves. In the end, nothing compares to what this kind of faithfulness builds. Because these are the treasures that make our lives worth living. But treasures, though they might be, they remain hidden and anonymous, revealed only to those who have been faithful to something other than themselves long enough to finally see them. Which leads me back to Jack Callahan and Bill Crow and with it to the end of this sermon. Here in this one image of these two side-by-side cleaning dishes, Here was to me the very sight of the virtue of faithfulness. Here in this one image was to me the answer to Miles' question as to why we persist in committing ourselves to something like a church. For here in this one image was the sight of one man taking pride in this ancient thing that will not quite die, and in so doing, sharing it, in hopes that another generation might also one day see the anonymous treasure of it all. Yes, here in this one image, I saw the very embodiment of the virtue of faithfulness 
being passed along. And I hope you are able to see that in this image too because otherwise I don't know how else to impress it upon you. And so then I close by saying this. Daniel and Jenny are to be commended for encouraging their children to serve in such a way. And not just because service is good, which of course it is, but also because through encouraging such mundane acts of service, they are equipping their children to one day know the fullness and richness that can come only on account of having been committed to something larger than their own immediate wants and desires. Of having been committed to things that on their face seem quite tedious and undesirable and frankly, boring. If you'll recall in the animated film Up, the film we watched in the church parking lot together three weeks ago, the young boy Russell, reflecting on his experiences with his father, remarks, I know this may sound boring, but I think the boring stuff is what I remember the most. I think the boring stuff is what I remember the most. Well, I imagine that cleaning dishes with Bill Crow on a Wednesday night was boring for Jack Callahan. But I also imagine that decades from now, once Jack has become an adult and has moved on with his life and finds himself looking back on his time at Boulevard Baptist Church, well, I imagine it will quite possibly be things like cleaning dishes with Bill Crow on Wednesday nights that Jack will remember the most. Why? Because these are the hidden treasures. Because these are the things that done over and over again, year in and year out, eventually fill us with a measure of meaning and purpose and value that we can't find otherwise. Because these are the things that, like four updikes miles, make one's life feel full. And because these are the things that, like for Ruth and Naomi, make one's life in the end a blessed life. And thus, when Jesus says that those who are faithful in a little will also be faithful in a lot, he means that not only figuratively, but also quite literally. He means that those who are faithful in their commitment to the little things, to the small, daily, boring, tedious things done for someone or something bigger than themselves, he means that those who are faithful in these little things will soon enough grow full themselves on account of it. And so then in the final analysis, these treasures held out to us via the virtue of faithfulness. These are things that the ethic of authenticity for all its great gains cannot offer us. And thus a re-examination of the virtue of faithfulness is precisely the thing we need right now in a culture obsessed with individualism. That may sound boring, 
But as the movie says, it is the boring stuff we often remember most. And it may just sound like a little. But as the scripture says, it is a little thing that will sure open our eyes to a whole lot more. Amen.